you know, it's still true today. Look for things other people aren't doing, even day to day on a desk or running your business. It's not easy to see, but when you see a crease, don't be afraid to go into the crease and fight. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm joined today by a repeat guest, Doug Bugey. My last conversation with Doug was about the four qualities of the world's top recruitment leaders. For those who don't know Doug, Doug Bugey's career in recruitment spans over three decades. His current role is with FPC, one of the top recruitment companies in America, as ranked by Forbes. You can learn more about that company, fpcfranchise.com. Doug has set up 800 recruitment franchises in 40 countries who collectively have filled over 100,000 assignments, which is quite mind-blowing in terms of Doug's impact. He's also lived and worked in the recruitment industry in both the USA and the UK, so he has a really global perspective that's quite unique and relevant to my audience, which spans both of those continents as well. So welcome, Doug. Thank you for joining me for round two here. Hey, Mark, it's my pleasure. You're doing great things to uplift the entire industry with these podcasts, and uh, uh, it's an honor to be on them. I'm just going to add quickly from a, uh, call it a CV standpoint, if you will, uh, I'm really happy to be representing uh, Antal again in uh, Europe and Scandinavia, the UK too, to help them grow. And I, I for a time, oh, I, cool. I ran uh, Antal when they were just getting into franchising to start to grow. So that's I'm really thrilled with that, and uh, uh, just wanted to add that in. And let's let's we're off to the races. All right, awesome. So um, you and I have spoken a few times over the last uh, couple of months, and you made a statement to me that the industry is roaring back. Can you give me a quick snapshot on what you're seeing? Yes. Well, I, I'll use FPC as a microcosm here. Uh, because they're very good at aggregating the data from their 65 offices and not just uh, invoicing and collection and such average fee, but they really get down into the weeds as far as uh, how many uh, quality interviews does it take to fill a job and, and how many they have premium level job orders and then sort of average. And uh, there's different ratios applied. You know, the premium ones are they're harder to get, but the fill rates higher, such things. And, and uh, they're about to make a, an announcement that business is up 25% this year thus far, and not from a COVID low, not from a really low number, because the last year finished on a big kick. In fact, we opened eight new offices uh, at the end of the year, and we had a real surge. And, the, and it's funny because it was like a desert. Nobody was doing anything the prior six to nine months. Then – as it, uh, the, the COVID crisis seemed to be lifting, the vaccines were taking hold, and also people were realizing it's a terrible thing, but the show goes on as terrible as it is, and now it's night and day. In fact, it may even be a new record period of growth for the industry. The, to, a, to an office, everyone's saying they, the problem is they've got more business than they can fill as companies are resizing, adjusting, they overreacted, let too many people go. Look, last month in the United States, a million jobs were created. I think that might be an all-time record. But there were so many let go. I think 15 or 20 million people lost their jobs in the depth of the crisis, from executives to 
you know, people uh, working at McDonald's. And now the adjustment is on. And from what I'm reading, the snapback is on in the UK too. My friend and the leader of Antal, Anthony Goodwin, tells me that the U.S. surge in the economy probably will be worth about a one-point increase in the British economy. Just that's how connected we are. And uh, so I think that we're in for some very good times. But like always, it's not just fruit falling into one's hands. Uh, Things are shifting. Things are changing. And you got to be positioned and do it right. There are winners and losers and tens of thousands of recruitment companies went out of business during the COVID era uh, period in the United States, which has not ended, but it looks like we're pushing past. Well, that's encouraging to hear you say that, and it very much reflects what I'm seeing and hearing from my clients as well. Um, You know, Q4 last year was pretty strong, and this year things are absolutely you know, taking off for many, many of the recruitment business owners I'm speaking to. Um, but, you know, w- with that said, you still need to be smart and strategic and apply a lot of thoughtfulness and skill to do well in this industry. Yeah, um, I think, I think uh, Mark, you know, thoughtfulness and skill, great choice of words. Yeah, I'm a proponent. It's not because I'm an older guy and I've been in the industry pushing four decades. It's not. I'm not old school. I hope I'm not. I don't think I am. But there is a there is a combination of technology and humanity that's still needed. Too much of one is inefficient. Humanity. It's hard to keep up with things just as a human, even using you know CRM systems and keeping track of pipeline and all that kind of thing. Uh, it is hard. You need technology, and also technology. Uh, every new FPC franchise and every new Antel franchise, they get the technological tools. They do digital marketing, search engine optimization build microsites for each office. But if, if what I see, and it's a threat, it's a boon for those who stay connected personally and interesting to their clients and candidates, but it's a threat to companies that pivot to uh, their recruiters and for the recruiters themselves to, to use only technology. Companies pick up on it. Candidates pick up on it. The ones who combine both, in proper balance will win. The ones who go too far one way or the other will fade out. They will not win the race. Well, you and I are singing from the same hymn sheet there. I, I totally agree. Um, Doug, you referenced your, you know, decades of experience in the recruiting industry. And one thing which we didn't have a chance to talk about last time that I'm really curious to ask you about is your experience of building a business with James Kahn. And I wondered if we could start with that and you could talk a little bit about how you came over to the UK and, and what you guys did together. Well, it's kind of an interesting story. My When I, when I uh, started with MRI, which was then the leader in uh, uh, franchising, but also outright in revenue and number of offices and executive recruitment, that was 86, 1986. And I had an international background. I'd already worked in about 40 countries for companies like Eaton Corporation and at multinationals. And I got lucky. I got hired and I went all over the world extensively, repeatedly, uh, months at a time, uh, developing world as well as developed world. And the founder of MRI hired me and I'd known him since 
college days, I went out with his daughter. I mean, so this is how do you meet people? Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> uh, his stepdaughter, actually. But anyway, he wanted me to examine the world for MRI and see if they could expand and sell franchises for him, which I eventually decided to do. It wasn't easy because it was my first straight commission job. Even though it was a big company measured in the hundreds of millions, there's no way they're going to pay me a salary. I got to draw on commission. And at that time in my life, I'm thinking, whoa, you know, do I want to do that? And it took me a while to make up my mind, actually. So, so anyway, I did it. And I went to probably 30 countries to look at what people are doing in executive recruitment and how, uh, do, how does it compare with how we do it in the United States. And I found out one fundamental thing, and it led me to James Conn. Uh, one fundamental thing was most of the business at that point in the mid range, which would today be about 80,000 to about 300,000 pounds or dollars or euros, broad middle range, the vast majority of the business. And this is in the eighties and into the nineties was done by advertising and selection. So you'd had the Sunday times, you know, remember all the ads from MB selection and such Hoggett Bowers and yep. such. And, yep. and millions of pounds were spent a month on these ads and very little executive search was put behind them. It was all reactive. And I found that to be true globally, but uh, the UK was the biggest market. So fundamentally, it, it occurred to me that executive search, the way MRI did it, could be uh, executed, implanted and grown practically anywhere in the world and no one else was really doing it. So mm. how did that lead, you know, and I didn't come to that conclusion overnight. I, I spent a year traveling the world on and off and, 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 uh, uh, MRI was so entrepreneurial that when I traveled, I didn't earn any money. I had to have a pipeline of money of my sales in the United States and they'd pay for my travel, but they didn't pay me a salary. It was interesting. So I really wanted to do it. And I, and I did it at some personal sacrifice. Uh, but anyway, Boy, boy, oh boy, was it a, a market that beckoned. And I, I went to the UK, really dug in. I met all the players. You know, I met Robert Walters. I met I met Michael Page. I met the guys who find, founded Harvey Nash. I met them wow. all. And they all wanted to meet me. Who is this company that's got 450 offices and does search in the middle range? Who are these people? What do they do? So it was easy for me to meet people. And, and everybody kept talking about, I remember meeting the founder of Select, and I met Tony. Uh, what was his name? Who founded Blue Arrow? Uh, uh, I can't remember, but he was a big. I met all the titans, and they're all talking about over a period. I made about six trips to the UK. And they're all talking about James Con. James Con. He's 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 upending the industry. He's a, a renegade. Uh, what are we going to do about him? He's 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 uh, he's taking recruiters from our companies. He's putting them in other co- companies. And, and uh, we don't even know how he's doing it because he's not running advertising. So finally, <laughs> I, I, um, I got a hold of James, and it was my, my third trip. And I said, and he didn't know me, James Kahn, Doug Bugey, I'm hearing about you about every 10 minutes. Everybody's talking about you, and it's not all favorable because apparently you're recruiting recruiters from them and putting them in other companies. I got to meet you. You're turning the, co- uh, the country upside down. And he must have been 26 years old. So he, he'll laugh at this because obviously he's matured. He's become a, a giant in the world at entrepreneurism in this field. There's no question. I think he's number one. I don't think it's, it's beyond question. Um, but he met me in Hampstead and he was sort of on a roll. His business was starting to really make money. Alexander Mann. 
And yeah. I did, I'd never met him. He showed up in a yellow Corniche convertible in a yellow suit. <laughs> and I said, and I wasn't exactly normal. I mean, I was buttoned down corporate, but you know, I've got my, I've been around the world and seen a lot of things. And I learned never to judge a book because I'd made that mistake in Hong Kong and other places where I thought the guy was the factory manager on the floor. And it turns out he's the owner of the business. And I really blew it a few times overreacting. So I got over the Corniche and the two. And actually I thought it was pretty cool. And, and we went to his house and he told me what he was doing. And what he was doing was simply, he saw, he's got a classic statement and it still resonates today. It's called observe the masses and do the opposite. Yes. He was the only guy who said, wait a minute, there's such a surge in need for recruiting. You know, I'll set up a search company and some people will be my clients and some people will be my source companies. And, 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 you know, nobody wanted to admit they're doing business with them because they were taking people sort of a gentleman's agreement, if you will. We don't do that. Well, they did do it. People were always looking for high performing recruiters then and now. So so he supplied them and he ended up with about 20 people on the floor doing that. And nobody else was even doing it in the country. So he was the only person I met who was doing search in the middle. And I invited him to the United States. Uh, it was beautiful. He thought it was great. He saw the uh, how we franchised it, scaled it. and But they, at MRI, thought he was too young. He's just too young to do a joint venture with. And they're a little bit chicken-hearted anyway about doing anything overseas, uh, period. So uh, I leave MRI, and I'll get to the end of this story quickly, but it's kind of a fun story. I, I leave MRI to run for U.S. Congress in 1992. Oh, wow, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I invested, I invested my life savings. I quit at a high. Uh, we were, I think we did 91 openings that year in America, 91 new franchises. So I left at a high. Uh, they didn't waste any time in filling my position. They filled it on a, the following Monday. And I was on TV, running around. I got on TV right away, the whole bit. Well, I lost. And I had all my money tied up in it. I raised a lot of oh money. Oh, my gosh. My life savings. My entire retirement account. Because TV's expensive. I really went for it and I lose and I'm sitting there going, what the hell am I going to do now? Uh, I don't have any money. And I'm, I'm 38, 39 years old. I get this phone call from James Scott. He says, Hey Doug, why don't you come over here and do this with me? You know? And he put it, and I think it's in chapter 21 of his first book, uh, drag brick lane to dragon's den. I I've never read the whole book, but I've read that chapter because he wrote how he <laughs> kind of reeled me in and he did. So I moved over to London with nothing and we started the business. He had about 20 people. He was doing mostly recruit, recruit for recruitment, but uh, he had some other desks going and uh, uh, we started it. And it, believe me, uh, a lot of people were wary and it took about two years and a lot of Kentucky fried chicken, but it started taking hold. And by year seven, we were expanding exponentially. We hit 80 million U.S. in billings and about 150 offices in 20 countries. And let me tell you, I'm making something very difficult sound very easy. It was relentless. It was seven days a week, and he was on it. You know, he's, he's made it now, and he's got the lifestyle and the, the fame and all that. Relentless, relentless worker. And his biggest thing was he could attract people to the cause. He, the, the initial team I had built our business, and they went on to have spectacular careers scaling and building businesses around the world themselves. Spectacular. Yeah. And uh, 
But James could attract people and get them to buy into the mission and get them to really want it. Even people a lot older than him, like me, I was easily 12, 13 years his senior, and he just had that knack. And look where he's gone. Uh, I will say, uh, you know, the only other guy I've met in the UK who has that knack to, to see things other people don't see is uh, Anthony Goodwood. He was the first one over into Hungary, Russia, Poland. He took this business, which I didn't do. We never went east. James and I didn't do that. Tony went east. And now he's largest in Poland, largest in Russia, largest in China. He went, he went ways. And, uh, and you just have to have the nerve and the belief and you see, hey, wait a minute, there's a gap here. And if, if I could get the right people trying to fill that gap, we're going to really do well. And, and, and they, he built insurmountable leads in those countries. India, I helped him with India, largest in India. So it's... It, it, you know, it's still true today. Look for things other people aren't doing, even day to day on a desk or running your business. It's not easy to see, but when you see a crease, don't be afraid to go into the crease and fight. Wow, that's a fantastic uh, story. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Can I just pick up on a couple of things you said there? One is <clears throat> this idea of recruitment to recruitment. I didn't realize that James Kahn had sort of been one of the pioneers of that whole, because that's a massive industry now in the UK. In fact, my- He was the pioneer. Yeah. I swear to you, there was, and there wasn't one other company doing it. And in fact, it was so renegade, and I don't say it in a negative way, but it was a renegade idea uh, I walked, I talked to this guy the other day, Simon Barrow of, of, of England, founded the Recruitment Society. And I walked into a meeting. I figured, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know the cross currents going on with that industry just forming and how many people. It was so controversial. It was the only one. I walked into a meeting with James and with Tony Byrne. The older people remember Tony as sort of the Elvis <laughs> of uh, recruitment training. Yep. And uh, they, they threw us out. <laughs> they said, get out. And now Simon, who became a believer, and he's the thought leader worldwide in uh, employer branding. You ought to interview him. He's okay. Incredible. Incredible. He is the man. And uh, now we're really good friends because we won him over. We won the whole industry over, not just with recruitment and recruitment, but even doing executive search. Remember, 
that undermined the advertising and selection approach. Do you see ads in the Sunday Times now? It's like the red phone book or for a phone booth. It's gone away. It used to be two <laughs> inches thick. So we really, exactly. we really, we really turned that around and, uh, uh, and it's global. Now it's the way it's done. It's everywhere. That's the way it's done. It, you don't see ads. Oh, you'll see some usually for public sector, but, but it's, it's a fraction of what it was because yes. executive search is the way to find talent. It's the best way uh, to find the people who are, you know, the people you're looking for are not necessarily looking for you. That's executive search. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And it's interesting. So one thing I noticed, I'd love to come on in a few minutes and talk about the differences you see between recruiting in the US and the UK. But I see like there's dozens of rec to rec companies in the UK. Yeah. In fact, yeah. My, um, my COO, Leanne, ran her own recruitment to recruitment business for five years before getting into the coaching space. But I don't see very many in the U.S. What, why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting observation, Mark, and that's what I mean. Your listeners should stick with you because you are the guy who see, you're like, uh, in a way, in, in your own way, like a James Conn. You just see things and you pick up on trends. Tony did it. Anthony did it. you got to be able to pick on, up on these things. Why? Why isn't it in the U.S.? And it really isn't. Most of the good recruitment in the U.S. is done by people like uh, John Callagher from the U.K., who's really big globally in that. Uh, he, has, he does a lot of American assignments, but there isn't a big industry like in the U.K. that employs hundreds and hundreds of recruiters. In the U.S., it's funny. It's maybe a, a, a version of our capitalism, our form of capitalism. Uh, the owners have to get up and go and get off their duffs and recruit their own people. They don't want to pay. In fact, and they don't want to pay the fees. And that's what they do, and that's how it's evolved. I, I would say that's always going to be the case. There's going to be recruit, recruitment company owners who go, why would I pay a recruiter? That's what we do, right? What, why would I pay a recruiter to recruit people for me? But I, So I think that objection is, is universal, but there's always going to be others yeah, who, who say, well, listen, our clients use recruiters, and they also do their own hiring, and they also have a number of strategies. So, you know, we're... We, we want to grow fast. And so we, we're going to get help. We're going to get people who specialize, who talk to recruiters every day to send the best people to come and talk to us. So, well, I have a theory, I have a theory and it's just a theory, but I think it's founded on experience. Uh, it's still in the U S at the senior levels of the U S the, uh, still the big, the, the big names, Hydrica struggles, Russell Reynolds and such, uh, they're vulnerable. They're not as good as they think they are, but they're good and they're established brands and they're sophisticated. Uh, they're also a little bit like McKinsey. They win business and they hand it off to juniors. Yeah. They do that. Uh, and they're known for that. People don't like that, but they, but you know, the, the, that's, that's their, that's some, their model to a great degree. Uh, not always, but what below that level, and there are a lot of great companies below that level, but Recruitment in the United States, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was with a guy the other day, Steve Finkel, I, I, on my trip here across the United States. I had lunch with him and spent the afternoon with him. He's the, probably the foremost, certainly the highest tenured trainer in the American recruitment industry, and he's got a lot of experience in the U.K. and around the world. And he's a good friend with a guy named Paul Hawkinson. And Paul had the only recruitment newsletter, uh, intelligent, not just, you know, uh, uh, ABC recruitment helps softball league expand. You know, I mean, it's it, it really insightful, meaty, intellectual stuff. 
When Paul retired, there is no other letter like that in the is United States. Is that the Fordyce letter or something? Yeah. Yes, the Fordyce letter, yes. Uh, in the UK, there are, and D.D. Doak, an American, runs one yeah. of them. Uh, of course, David Head. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the industry information, Perriam and Everett, uh, when they were around, yeah. they, were, they had sophisticated insights and the industry itself, the annual meeting where everybody get together for the awards night, yeah. black tie, it's still a couple of levels in professionalism at the where, where people are doing it right above the U.S. And part of that is uh, the industry is respected and therefore a company that's in the industry trying to find talent for others, if they're doing a good job, are respected. In the United States, it's still to some degree churn and burn. You manage churn at the uh, mid-level contingency, even contingency stroke retained. It doesn't have that. It's better now. Younger people think it's cool, but it still isn't as cool and sophisticated and slick and professional as in the UK. Hmm. And and I think the UK is the epicenter of the world. Now, the UK is also overserved. Hmm. There's so many people in the business that yes. drives down fees, and there's a lot of flotsam and jetsam. But there's flotsam and jetsam everywhere floating around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the UK is still ahead. And part of that being ahead is that there's an established industry to help companies find talent and pay fees. In the US, we haven't gotten there yet. We don't even have a national publication on the industry that I'm aware hmm. of anyway that's any good or, or even not any good once the Ford, Fordyce letter stopped. So there's still, and I'd say this is a compliment, but the UK is still, as far as I'm concerned, look at your banking sector. The UK, it was and is the world leader in, gen- in, in service businesses. There are more recruitment companies in London than there are in New York, Chicago, Atlanta, and LA combined. Really? There are more public, okay. yes. And there are more public, in a way that's good. Mm-hmm. You've got to be good to compete, though. And maybe that's why there is a couple level of difference between most, you know, the British industry and the American. But the American industry is good. It's just, it's just really spread gigantic, probably 100,000 businesses in it. Uh, but the UK, pound for pound, has more recruiters and recruitment businesses than any other nation in the world. I'd uh, call it relative to your GDP. And and that the sharp, the, your sword is sharpened. It has to be sharpened. And that plays out in the publications, in the thought leadership, the whole thing. People like Simon Barrow uh, with, uh, uh, recruit, with company branding, the whole area of service, and, and led by banking and your London Stock Exchange, which does more transactions than London and to- or New York and Tokyo combined every day. You, you guys are still, you guys should stick your chests out. You still are the world leader in many regards. Okay, so that's interesting. What Just to, um, let, let me set it. No, that's all right. So <laughs> it's a torrent of information. Let me just set aside, because I want to go deeper on this idea of the difference between recruiting in U.S. and U.K. And by the way, I actually think it's becoming closer and closer together as, you know, the world gets smaller and with the exchange of information and social media, I think the similarities are increasing and the dissimilarities are decreasing. But uh, there are still some notable agree with notable you. differences. I agree with you. Um, but can we just tell me, uh, what was it like working with James in those early days, like, cause he, I believe the first office was not glamorous. It was sort of above a, a shop on the, on the high street, right? 231 
231 Tottenham Court Road, next, uh, very close to a fish and chip shop, <laughs> close enough to smell it. And, and, and above a stereo store run by, uh, it was an Asian family, and there were no carpeting on the stairs. And that was the funny part. Uh, I, I, I'll never forget people like the founders of Harvey Nash. I, you know, I kind of convinced them to come see us. And, and, uh, they, they, you could hear him echoing in the hall because there were three flights of stairs and there was no carpeting and you could hear him talking, coming up the stairs. This was over and over and over again. And you hear, it can't be here. This American guy can't be here. There's no way they're here. 400 offices in America. What the hell is this? And you could hear him clomp, 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 clomp coming up the stairs. And sometimes you hear clomp, 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 clomp. They'd go the hell with this and they'd start walking out. So I'd run down the stairs and grab them and go, no, it's me. We're here. here." And, 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 uh, and I'd bring them up to my little office that James had created for me with nice furniture. And I got sick of that fast and went down on the floor with the people. I felt like I was too isolated and sort of being an elitist. And that's not me. But we'd go down to the floor and they'd come up though. And they'd come up to the floor and there was one bathroom for like 40 people. Oh my gosh. And, 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 and it was so basic that the first franchise we sold, we had a Christmas party and we had a few companies that had joined as existing firms. We didn't sell fresh franchises at the beginning, but we had our first one. I'm not going to mention his name. It wouldn't be fair, but he's at the Christmas party and it consisted of it. So I'm giving you a feel for how basic it was. And we had beer in a sink and, you know, one bathroom, unisex. And it was just bare, but there were chipboards up on the wall and the desks were lined up right. It had all the elements of the kind of the dealer room, the way the thing started, but it was, it was really fun. But uh, this fellow's walking around. He's going, so where are all these other franchises? I, I expected you guys to have an organization. And I said, hey, hey, man, Mr. X, you're it. <laughs> there had to be number one and you're it. And, and, but there were enough people in the room to give them a sense of family and, 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 and size so, you know, it was you had to, it was just a real bare knuckle fight in the trenches to get the thing established. And the entire industry thought we were crazy. So, uh, you know, we had a lot of people. I'd call up companies and say there's some people really famous in the industry now and they're friends of mine now. Uh, but I'd call them up and I'd go, we're, we're, we're going to start this scaling up of doing executive recruitment in the middle. Do you want to get on board? Because I started with existing companies. Fresh executives, people who've never done it, they didn't want to hear about it. And I'd have people hanging up on me. We don't want, you took my people, or you're with that guy, or you guys did me, you know, and, and who are you and the Americans? You're like contingency lawyers, you're going to destroy our industry, ambulance chasers. Oh my God, it was so negative. But, it, you know, we were right. That's the, we didn't know we were right. We just kept fighting because we believed in the idea. And eventually we started winning people over. But James was always there helping me pitch. He was always there helping me bring people in. He knew when to kind of step forward. And he also knew if somebody was really upset because they had been recruited from when to sort of step back. We had a great yin and yang going. We knew we, we played it, you know, uh, and we had a lot of fun. I mean, even the name Humano, it was invented in a pub. We were going to call ourselves Business Systems Management because – you know, BSM stand for, stood for British. I was a British driving school, something or other. And when James thought they'd remember the, uh, the the initials, but it was pretty boring. And I ended up coming up with Humana over a few pints because it was a big health system in the United States. But I figured they wouldn't come after us. They did. They they threw Clifford Chance at us, the largest law firm in the country. But we we beat him back. We had nothing to beat him back with. But we're not going to stand out. I mean, that's what you have to do almost when you're starting a business. You don't want to be nuts. 
you know, and, and, and just go forward into the mustard gas and not know what you're doing. But on the other hand, I admire so much people who start businesses because a lot of them fail or they have to pivot. And there's a lot of dark times when you're doing it. Mm. But gosh, the world is driven by small businesses, highest taxpayers, highest earners, highest portion of GDP. And hats off to all of you who are out there who have done it and gotten through because you are the men and women that make the world economy thrive. No question about it. It's not the multinationals. It's the, it's the small businesses that drive the world economy, including recruitment. Here, here. That's very well said. I agree. Um, so listen, this is t- uh, a hell of a story. And then, I mean, was there ever a time when you thought, what am I doing? You know, this, this was a massive error. Or did you feel like you had found your place right from the beginning? Well, uh No, I mean, you know, it's funny uh, when you're in the there's an old expression, you know, when when you're riding in the desert on a horse, there's only one thing to do. Keep moving. You know, (laughs) Uh, you you don't have much of a choice. or You're going to die. And, and, you know, uh, uh, I make this sound like those, you know, maybe our parents stories of walking five miles each way in the snow with one button on their jacket. A lot of that was true. Uh, If you go back far enough. Just the toughness you had to have. And, and toughness means, because you are going to get set back, means you've got to keep going. I mean, uh, uh, and I've had those, you know, I had it then. I had the Garfunkels, I think it was called, All You Can Eat on Fridays, <laughs> and I'd save my change up, and I'm almost 40 years old, and I'm, I'm putting all my change into a, a little bag and going down and eating all I could eat. And I'm 40, remember, I'm not a kid. And uh, uh, I had a great job, and I could I think it's even even later in life after selling Humana, I've never always had highs. I've had failures. I've had setbacks. And and I think that you have to try to remember, even going back to when you were a kid, things that you overcame. Uh, Maybe a bully went after you and you finally punched him in the nose or you studied all night for a test and really did well. And the things you sacrificed for, maybe the jobs you had that were really crummy jobs, but you did it to help your parents pay your way through school or whatever. Ladies and gentlemen, we have lost contact with Doug Bugey, unfortunately. Uh, we're pretty much done anyway. Doug shared with me that he was in the middle of nowhere in Kansas, in a place where there was more cows than people, and we've had a connectivity issue. So I'm afraid that's the end of the podcast, but... But boy, so many great stories and insight shared there. Doug is 20 years my senior, and I sincerely hope that I have his level of energy when I am that age and that I'm still out there fighting the good fight and helping to move our great industry forward. So thank you to Doug Bugie for joining me today. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in to The Resilient Recruiter. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.